The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, where we are continuing our study of this great book of the Apostle Paul. You'll remember that we had said in weeks past that Paul is combating a teaching in the Colossian church that questions whether Christ alone is sufficient. It doesn't deny his lordship. This teaching doesn't necessarily deny his supremacy. It simply says, more or less, from what we can piece together, something like, you started well with Christ, but we can take you deeper in the faith, with deeper knowledge and a deeper experience of God's power by following after certain teachings and rituals that had not been spoken of in the gospel of Christ first preached to you. That's essentially, uh, very broadly, what the false teachers uh, in the Colossian church were teaching. And we said that the Apostle Paul responded to that from the very moment that he opened his word of greeting to the Colossians. In his very greeting, he undercuts that teaching, as we saw when we looked at that. And then in verses 3 through 8, Uh, he begins to offer up a prayer of thanksgiving for what God is doing in the lives of the Colossians. And that prayer also, it undercuts this idea that there is something else other than Christ that these Colossians need uh, as uh, believers. And then finally, in verses 9 through 14, which we looked at several weeks ago, we saw Paul continue to pray, Uh, Now for specific things uh, for these Colossians to know and experience as part of their belief in Christ. And now today we get to uh, the most important section of Paul's message to the Colossians and one of the most important passages uh, in all of the New Testament where Paul begins to set forth who Christ is. Because as far as Paul is concerned, if we will simply learn who he is, so much of the rest of the Christian life will just fall into place. If we will know who it is that we love and serve, we will know that we don't need to go anywhere else other than Christ to find all the resources necessary for life and godliness, all of the resources necessary for Christian growth and grace and for a deeper knowledge of God and for a genuine experience of his power in our lives. Now, this morning we are going to focus on verses 15 through 20. But let's read from verses uh, 13 through to verse 23 from Colossians chapter 1. He, speaking of, of God the Father, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Our Lord, we acknowledge that this is your word. Our hearts come to you this day in different conditions, some cold, some disinterested or distracted, some apathetic, some under conviction, some in need of comfort, some in need of encouragement, some in need of instruction. Lord, we could go on, but you know Better than we do ourselves, the condition of our hearts today. By your spirit, minister your word to each of us in his or her own condition. Draw us to yourself. Quench the spiritual thirst in each of us, or as the the need may be, kindle it if necessary. And we'll give you the praise and the glory. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And cause us to glorify you in our response to your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now it seems to me that most everybody in this world has either one of two problems with Jesus Christ. Some people doubt his supremacy. Others doubt his sufficiency. Those who doubt the supremacy of Christ are normally non-Christians. They may be atheistic. They may be religious. They may be members of another religion other than Christianity. But whatever the case may be, they doubt what Paul claims here about the supremacy of Christ. They may honor Christ as a great moral teacher or as a prophet, but they do not believe that he is the Lord over all, as the Apostle Paul is going to argue in this passage. Others, perhaps within the church, perhaps within the fold of professing Christianity, may acknowledge Christ's supremacy with their tongues. They may give assent to the idea that he is supreme, but they have questions as to whether he is sufficient. And in doubting his supremacy, uh, they continue to try, or in doubting his sufficiency, I should say, they continue to try and supplement Christ 
in their Christian experience. They start with Christ, but they move on to other things. Sometimes they move on to their own works, and they think that they can begin with Christ, and yet if they are going to stay in fellowship with God, they must supplement it by meriting God's favor, by earning his favor with their obedience, with their performance as Christians. Sometimes they actually mix Christianity with other types of belief. They mix it with something as seemingly crazy as astrology or, or even the occult or with mysticism or psychology or, or even some other form of religion, perhaps some new age teaching, or they mix Christ with some secular self-help teaching that is currently popular. You know, there's always a new fad uh, that comes along. The point is there are many Christians, professing Christians, and, and actual Christians, who doubt the sufficiency of Christ. They believe in Christ, they profess his name, and yet in their experience, and, and even in their belief, they think that in order to have fullness of life, they need to supplement what they have in Christ with something else. Whether it is the supremacy or the sufficiency of Christ, which is denied or doubted, Paul is speaking here in, first, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, precisely to those conditions today. And while we don't have time to examine in detail everything Paul says in this glorious passage, I do want to draw your attention today to four assertions about Christ that Paul makes in these verses. And I want to look at those as closely as we can. Uh, let me mention them to you, and then we'll look at them. In verse 15 and down to verse 17, in verses 15 through 17, Paul asserts that Christ is the Lord of creation. If you look at verse 18, there Paul asserts that Christ is the head of the church. In verse 19, Paul asserts that Christ is the fullness, or that the fullness dwells in him. And then in verse 20, Paul says that Christ is the reconciler. He is the one who reconciles the world to God. I want us to look at those great assertions, these great truths that Paul sets forth here. But before we do that, I'd like to just point out a couple of interesting connections uh, in these verses. I won't be able to do much more than mention them, but maybe in your personal Bible study time this week, you'll be able to go back and look at some of those in more detail. They are uh, very interesting. First of all, notice the connection between Christ as creator and Christ as redeemer. Uh, if we were to lay out this passage side by side and put verses 15, 16, and 17 in one column and verses 18, 19, and 20 in another column, we would see a beautiful parallel. Uh, in each of those passages, we would see Paul repeat four phrases. In verse 15 and verse 18, he uses the phrase, who is, who is, to open that section. In verses 15 and 18, he speaks of Christ as the firstborn. In verse 15, he calls Christ the firstborn of all creation, and we'll talk about what that means in a little while. And in verse 18, he calls him the firstborn from the dead. In verses 16 and 19, he uses the phrase, for by him, or 
for in him, in Christ, for by him, for in him. And in verses 16 and 20, he uses the phrase in heaven and on earth, or on earth or in heaven. There's this this very interesting parallel here between verses 15, 16, and 17 and verses 18, 19, and 20. And in each of these phrases, he parallels Christ's lordship in creation with Christ's lordship in redemption. And he sees those as going together, being inseparably connected. Christ's lordship in creation enables him to be a redeemer who can redeem us from any force. For if he created creation, and if he is the Lord of creation, what is there in creation that he is not able or that he is not capable of redeeming us from or of exercising dominion over? So Paul says Christ is both creator and redeemer. The second thing I'd like to point to before we get to those four great assertions I mentioned a moment ago, notice how often Paul repeats two phrases. He repeats all or all things, and he is. He repeats these over and all or all is, and he is. Look at verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. And down further in that verse, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, at the end of the verse, that in everything, in other words, all things, he might be preeminent, or he might have first place. In verse 19, it says, for all the fullness, all the fullness, right? And finally, in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, understand, Paul, and you'll remember from last time, if you were here, he has already prayed that the Lord would give these Colossians all wisdom and knowledge of the Lord, and that they would experience all divine power, right? And so over and over again, he repeats this phrase, all, all things. Why does he do that? To stress that all things, all things, without exception, without exclusion, have been subordinated under the rule, under the, the, under the dominion of Christ. Amen? So that if the Colossians need anything, if they lack anything in their Christian experience, if they need to pray for something, they don't need to look anywhere else but Christ. Because all things are his. He made it, and he rules over it. He rules over all things. And then there is the phrase, he is. He is. Notice in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 17, he is before all things. Verse 18, he is the head of the body. Why is Paul repeating that over and over again? Again, He's doing it because he wants to stress to the Colossians that it is absolutely vital that they understand who Christ is. For if they will understand who he is, it will take them a long way down the path of spiritual growth 
and it will protect them from the false teaching which says we need Christ plus something else. Whether that is Christ plus another religion, whether that is Christ plus our own meritorious works, whether that is Christ plus, and you can fill in the blank. If we will remember who he is, we will know that he is supreme and all-sufficient. And that is a message not just for the Colossians, but for all of us today. Amen? For the church today. He is supreme and all-sufficient. And to that end, I would like us to look together at these, those four great assertions in verses 15 through 20 so that we might learn again who Christ is. So let's look first of all at Christ as the Lord of creation. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is Paul stressing here? He is stressing the supremacy of Christ over all creation. Now, he does so much in that short passage and in those few phrases uh, that we couldn't possibly do it all justice today. So let me zero in on, on a few things that he asserts about Christ in those three verses. First of all, again, Christ is the Lord of creation. Consider the phrase, he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And that's a tricky phrase because you know that in Genesis 2 and elsewhere, Scripture talks about man being made in the image of God. Is Paul suggesting that Jesus is something less than divine? Absolutely not. How do we know that? Well, two things. First of all, he's about to tell us that uh, Christ is the one by whom the world is created. And certainly every good Jew in the congregation, hearing this epistle read, would have known that the person who created the world was God. And he is going to stress furthermore that Christ didn't just create some of it, he created all of it, and that the whole world was created for him. So the idea that Christ is not divine is, is not at all entering Paul's mind here when he says that uh, he is the image of the invisible God. Why then is he using the word image? Well, I, I think it's found in, 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 in that key word, invisible. He is the image of the invisible God. Remember, God is a spirit. We can't see him. He doesn't have a body like we do. But Christ is the image of the invisible God. He has manifested. He has represented to us what the invisible God is like. He is God in the flesh. He is deity incarnate. He has been enfleshed and so made visible. If you remember the interaction between Philip and, and Jesus in John chapter 14, Philip says, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long and you've still not seen? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. 
if you've looked on Jesus' face, you've seen what the Father is like. You want to know what God the Father is like? Look at the Son. He is the perfect reflection of the Father. He is deity in the flesh. He is the representation and manifestation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Not less than him, but equal to him. And the visible representation of that spiritual reality which transcends our sight and our senses. So in that phrase, Paul is emphasizing that Jesus is very God himself. He is not something less than God. He is not the highest of created beings. He is not simply a great man, a good man, a good moral teacher, a philosopher, a prophet, or anything else. He is very God. He is the image of the invisible God, the visible manifestation of deity. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, as Paul will say later on in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. I mean, that is so central to Paul's proclamation. Paul is not merely proclaiming a Christ who is a good man, who is an almost perfect man, who is a caring man or a loving man. He's proclaiming much more than that. He's proclaiming Christ who is both God and man. He is divine. He is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God in the flesh. He is God and man. He is perfectly divine. This is so important for us to see. And again, Paul sees this as central to his message. Today, there are many people who belong to denominations of so-called Christian churches that do not believe that Jesus is divine. They believe that Jesus was a good man. They believe that he had wise sayings. They believe that he had things that he taught that could help us in our daily living. Uh, But they do not believe that he is divine. As far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, if Jesus is not divine, we are undone. We might as well give it all up, pack it in, and go home, be Because if Jesus is not divine, church, he cannot release us from the power of darkness. He cannot free us from sin. He cannot bring us into the glorious light of God, and we are still in our sins. And when he says that he is the Son of God, or when we say that he is the Son of God, we don't mean by that that he's less than God either, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim. That simply means, and when Scripture says he is the Son of God, he bears a special filial relationship to God. He is very God, just like your sons and daughters are no less human than than you are. That's not a perfect analogy, but it's, it's helpful there. This Son of God is no less God than the Heavenly Father. He is in eternal relationship with him. He is very God, and that is at the very core of his ability to redeem us from sin. And this is is interesting. In the early church, it was three centuries before a heresy arose within Christian circles that denied that Jesus was divine. 
In fact, the early church was so convinced that Jesus was divine that the only heresy about the person of Christ which flourished within the Christian church for the first three centuries was the denial that he was human. The first heresy about Jesus Christ was a denial that he was human. No Christian would have questioned whether he was divine. The question was, how could someone who is so clearly divine also be truly human? That's how convinced the early Christians were. Why? Because Christ himself had taught and claimed to be divine. And he had demonstrated that claim in his resurrection and in his, in his ascension. And his apostles, to a man, all joined in the profession that Jesus is God. And the Apostle Paul sets that before us again. And in doing so, he asserts that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Why? He made creation. He's the creator. Now, Paul goes on and says a few other things in these verses. Notice that he says that by him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And he uses the phrase all things to stress that there was nothing that Jesus did not create. Nothing. Understand, again, that part of the false teaching infiltrating the Colossian church held that there is a very sharp divide between matter and the spiritual world. They would have thought that the spiritual world was of higher value than the material world, um, they would think that the material world was less was was uh, insignificant or, or less spiritual or less valuable in the sight of God. In fact, some in you know in full blown uh, Gnosticism, which, which came later, but the seeds of that we see in the Colossian heresy, uh, actually taught that what is materially you know matter was actually evil. That matter, the material world, was bad. So they had a very difficult time um, in, in, in well, I'll, I'll put it this way. They might have been tempted to think that, well, Jesus may have been the creator of the world that we can see, the material world. You know, but surely he wasn't the creator of the invisible world. Um, but Paul says he's the creator of all things. And some would think it differently. Well, he might have created the spiritual world, but he could not have created the material world, which is evil. Right, because they had such a sharp dichotomy. Paul says he's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. And just to make himself clear, he goes on and he throws this in, in heaven and on earth. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What is Paul doing? I mean, he's just piling up words to tell you, look. You're not going to find something in creation that he didn't create. He created it all, and it's all his. He is Lord over creation. This is the one who our Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord over creation. And Paul doesn't stop there. He says, look, he's not only the one who created creation, but creation was created for him. Creation finds its reason for being in glorifying him. I mean, look at the glorious phrase there in Colossians 1 verse 16. At the very end of the passage, all things were created through him and for him. 
for him. He not only created it all, but it was all created for him, for his pleasure, for his glory. Their their goal of existing, the reason for, for creation's existence is to bring him glory. Now, just back up a moment to the end of verse 15, where Paul writes of Christ that he is the firstborn of creation. Now, that phrase always brings some questions into people's minds. If he was the firstborn, was there a time when he didn't exist? Is, is Paul saying that Christ is the highest of all creatures? That he himself is a created being? That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, by the way. If they ever come to your door and you engage them in conversation, they will always point them and say, look, 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 he's not eternal. He was born. There was a time he didn't exist. And then he was born. He's the firstborn, the highest of all created things. And where it says that all things were created by him, they will actually insert in their new world perversion of the scriptures all other things (laughs) okay that he himself was a created being and then he created all other things this is not at all what this phrase means um Not at all, especially since verse 16 goes on to the very next words of Paul are after calling him the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things, not other things, all things were created. Paul does not include Christ in the created order. Christ brought the creation into being, all of it, not just earthly realities, but heavenly realities also. I mean, look what he says, in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. So again, Christ is not only the creator of creation, but creation was created for him. He is the beginning of creation. He is the source of creation. He is the end of creation. He is God overall. But then what does Paul mean? What in the world does he mean by firstborn? He means the same thing here in Colossians 1.15 as the author of Hebrews means in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 where he writes, Christ is the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. Now just put those two thoughts together. The firstborn over creation, the heir of all things. When you think of the firstborn in the context of a king, of a monarch, what do you think? You think of the heir, right? The firstborn in that society, in that culture, the firstborn, he was the one who generally was the heir of all things. That's what Paul is speaking about here. When you think of the heir, you think of the one who has primacy given to him. Paul is speaking of a primacy of power here. He's the firstborn in the sense that he is the heir. 
of all things. He's not speaking of a, a, a priority of time sequence here. Christ was created, he was born, and then he created everything else. That's not at all what it means. He's not saying that Christ was born first and then everything else came. He's saying that Christ has a primacy over everything. He is the firstborn in the sense he is the father's heir. He is the heir over all things. And the Apostle Paul says because of that, he has primacy over all creation. All things are upheld by him. All things are held together by him. You know, the philosophers look for their principle of coherence. The scientists, the chemists, the physicists, they look for the mystery of binding energy or, or binding force that holds everything together. The Apostle Paul is saying he's beyond all that. He is the thing in which the whole universe coheres. He is the one in which the whole universe coheres. He holds it all together. He created it all. And there is nothing in this universe that is outside of his control. Amen? Secondly, Paul asserts that Christ is head of the church. In verse 18, we see this phrase. He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is not only supreme over creation. Paul says he is supreme in and over the church. He is the head of and in the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And notice what Paul is, is, is emphasizing here. You know, Christ is the head of the church. He is the authority. He is the only head. He is the only Lord of the church. And understand this. That is the charter of freedom for you as a Christian. That you know that no human being can make up for you rules or teaching in the sphere of your Christian faith which have not been ordained by your Lord. Amen? You are free to be who your Lord intends you to be. And no man, however spiritual, may add to the commands of the Lord for what you are to be. I mean, that's your charter of freedom. So many people feel like they're bound. They're groaning under the load of having to obey the Bible. That it's a burden to obey the Bible. That is so untrue. That is such a warped perspective. The Bible frees you from the foolish and the capricious commands of men. For who has the authority to tell another man's servant how to serve, right? Who has the authority to tell Christ's servants, Christ's brothers and sisters, how they are to live and serve? The answer is no one. He is the Lord over the church. And when anyone claims to be head of the church, other than Christ, they are committing blasphemy against Christ. You know, whether that person be a leader of a great church and denomination, whether that person be a person in a local church setting who is, is claiming to add commandments you know, for the behaving of the Christian life, commandments that Christ himself has not inaugurated or initiated. We are set free from rules and regulations of men, from the commands and the commandments of men. Because Christ is the Lord in his church. Amen? 
he is also the head of his church in the sense that he is the source of all spiritual life in the body. Paul says he is the source. He's the head. He's the fountainhead of all spiritual life in the body. If you have life today as a believer, it's because you are united to Christ by faith. If you have life today, it is evidence that the work of the head of the body, the head of the body of Christ, is at work in you. Paul goes on not only to say that he is the head, that he is the authority, that he's the source of the life of his people. He goes on to say that he is the firstborn of the dead. And here, that is speaking of his resurrection. Uh, And he says that his resurrection is the ground of our hope. Christ is the firstborn of the dead. He's the first to rise, never to die again. And all who believe in him will one day be raised to life. Also, We're raised to newness of life now, spiritually, but one day, at the end of the age, we will all be raised literally from death to life. Christ being the firstborn, the first, and all who trust in him, all who belong to him, all who are united to him by faith, uh, will follow. He is the firstborn of the dead, from the dead. Uh, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere that if Christ be not raised from the dead, we are, we are of all people most miserable, he says that in 1 Corinthians 15. We might as well eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But Christ is raised. And Paul says he is the firstborn of the dead. And because he is the head of the church, and because he is the firstborn of the dead, because he's preceded us in resurrection, Paul says he has primacy in the church. He has supremacy in the church. Thirdly, Paul asserts that Christ is the fullness, or that the fullness dwells in him. Now, this is interesting. In verses 15 through 17 and in verse 18, Paul sets forth the supremacy of Christ. He knows that these Colossians believe in the supremacy of Christ, at least in theory, but they haven't understood its implications. And he turns to the implications of Christ's supremacy in verses 19 and 20. In other words, Christ is Lord, so what? Well, here's Paul's answer to that question. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, That phrase, uh, I'm reading from the ESV, other... uh, Well-known translations, reliable translations, translate that phrase this way. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Paul is arguing that because Christ is supreme in creation and in redemption, therefore, he is sufficient. His person is sufficient. The person of Christ is sufficient for our redemption. And he uses this glorious, this this mysterious phrase, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, how do we interpret that? I mean, that's a hard phrase to interpret. Well, let me just say a couple of things. First of all, fullness, the idea of fullness. Fullness is a word that the false teachers in Colossians like to throw around. Uh, They like to talk about 
this fullness that believers could attain if they would go through the mystic rituals and, and, and whatnot that they were uh, espousing. Uh, and it's interesting that the Apostle Paul fires back by saying, no, 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 Christ is the fullness. You don't look somewhere else other than Christ for the fullness. You look to Christ for fullness. The second interesting thing, if, if, if you... Uh, I, I, I mentioned it before. You don't have to turn there, but Colossians chapter 2, verse 9... Uh, there, Paul says, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or, again, as other translations render it, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, there, the word fullness in Colossians 2.9 is stressing that in Christ is the fullness of divinity. He is fully divine. And that may well be what Paul is driving at here in Colossians 1, uh, verse 19. He might just be suggesting the very same thing, and we could leave it uh, at that. But let me suggest something slightly different, because in verse 19 in chapter 1, he says again, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, Again, you know, meaning perhaps, as it is often translated, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Okay, And because it says it was the Father's good pleasure or the Father's will for this fullness to dwell in him, I'm not sure that Paul is talking specifically about the deity of Christ here. Paul's already asserted that. There's no question that Paul is teaching the deity of Christ. But, but, but Christ is divine, not because the Father wills it, but because in his essence he is divine. He is divine. The Father doesn't will the Son to be divine. The Son is divine. So what is it that the Father is willing here in this verse? What is his good pleasure here in this verse? What kind of fullness is this that it's the Father's will for Christ to have? Uh, well-known pastor and writer J. Ligon Duncan, whom I'm sure many of you have, have heard of, uh, he suggests this as an answer to those questions. He suggests that Paul is talking about the honor and the glory and the reward which is due to Christ alone because he alone has fulfilled all the responsibilities of his office as our Savior, as our mediator, the mediator of the covenant of grace. He suggests Paul is speaking of that fullness which God has been pleased to give to his Son, because he is pleased beyond measure with the perfection of our Savior's obedience and sacrifice. And that fullness is found, all found in him. That fullness belongs to him alone. In the words of Philippians chapter 2, he is given that name which is above every name because he humbled himself and because he took on the form of a servant and because he died the death on the cross and because he was raised again, he was exalted to that name above every name. 
And J. Ligon Duncan suggests that this is speaking of God's covenantal reward of his son, who is our mediator, because he has fulfilled everything he told the Father he would do on our behalf. And this is so important, the Apostle Paul says, for this reason. We are told that in him we are more than conquerors, right? We are hyper-conquerors. We are hyper-exalted. As he is hyper-exalted to the fullness of the Father because of the Father's pleasure and his obedience, we are exalted with him. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you want the fullness? You want the fullness that the false teachers are promising you? You've got the fullness in Christ. Don't look somewhere else. If you are in Christ, you will reign with him in glory. You will be hyper-exalted. You will be hyper-conquerors. For in him, all the fullness dwells by the Father's pleasure. There's nothing of glory and honor and blessing which is to be found outside of Christ. That may be what Paul has in mind here in verse 19. Uh, Fourthly and finally, Paul is asserting that Christ is the one who reconciles the world to God. Not only does Paul stress the supremacy of Christ in creation, not only does he stress the supremacy, his supremacy in the church, not only does he stress the sufficiency of Christ's person and work, he stresses, uh, uh, of, of Christ's person, he also here now stresses the sufficiency of Christ's work. He is the reconciler. Verse 20 says, through him, through Christ, God reconciled to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As Christ is the creator, Paul says he is also the reconciler. As sin destroyed the relationship between creatures and the creator, between man and God, so Christ restores that fellowship and relationship between man and God. And he does it through the death of his cross. Now, church, this is a distinctive of Paul's teaching, and it's a distinctive of Christian theology. We can never leave out the cross. Amen? We can never leave out the cross because the cross tells us that we were already at enmity with God. And the cross tells us that God provided a way back into fellowship with him. And there is no way back into fellowship with God apart from that cross. There is no way to get to him. There is a theology which has floated around in in the the church for the last 125 years or so, which says that men really aren't sinners. And God isn't really a just God who is going to punish sin. You know, he's really just an amiable grandfather in the sky who's going to bless everyone in the end. And so we, we need to put away all this stuff about sin and forgiveness and atonement and get on with it. And just teach good moral teaching from the pulpit. I mean, that's what basically all the old uh, mainline Protestant denominations have done, right? They've completely jettisoned the cross. Uh, The preaching of the cross, the message of the gospel. And uh, we see the results of that all around us. 
But as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, that is not true. Paul says that God has been uh, reconciled to the world, or the world has been reconciled to God through the death of Christ on the cross. One theologian many years ago described the liberal theology, which has no cross of Christ this way. He said, quote, a God without wrath in this theology, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without righteousness through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That is not Christianity. Christianity says that we have been estranged from God and that we deserve to be judged. But through the atoning death of Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied for all his people. As we sang just a little while ago, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, who? Christ, his death, and pardon me. As we embrace Christ by faith, as we repent of our sins, as we turn to him, we find in him the blessing of all the benefits of reconciliation with God. Have you embraced Christ? Have you realized that if you are apart from Christ, that you are at enmity with God? Have you realized that there is no way that you can be indifferent to God? You're either for him or against him. You're either his Or you're not. And if you're not, you can be his by coming to him uh, by faith. Uh, You come to him uh, in repentance and through faith. And you believe that he died on that cross to take the punishment for your sins. So that God the just would be satisfied to look on Christ and pardon you. If you are in Christ, have you recognized how sufficient he is? There's no need to go anyplace else, Paul says. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the reconciler. He is the fullness. It's all here in Christ. We begin with Christ. We end with Christ. He is the alpha. He is the omega. Amen? There's no need to look anywhere else today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father. We ask that you would show us the truth of who your son is. And as we see him in all his glory, we would embrace him willingly, freely, joyfully as the creator, the redeemer, the reconciler. And as the one who is fully God in human flesh. There are those who have come here today not knowing who he is. Reveal yourself to them through him by the word and by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.